It is perhaps the most idyllic ground that you could imagine for a political fight. My name is Anne Shirley Cuthbert, and please be sure to spell Anne with an E. Isn't it wonderful that every day can be an adventure? It's so easy to love Green Gables, isn't it? Anne with an E is a reimagining of Lucy Maud Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables stories, and it was a TV show that ran for three seasons, and then it got canceled. And the fans took it personally. Today's conversation isn't about Anne with an E, though. I'm sure it's a lovely show, but I've never watched it. This is a conversation about what happens when popular culture becomes a political identity. See, Anne with an E fans have by now become a kind of legendary social media force. They want their show back, and they are willing to ask and beg and plead and demand whomever has the power to bring it back until they get it. There's nothing wrong with that, really, except that there's a lot of time and energy and passion and creativity going into lobbying executives to bring back a TV show. And this isn't the first time that's happened. It isn't the first time that a piece of culture has become a political battleground. And what I want to figure out today is two things. First, how did this happen? How did pop culture become the new politics for so many people? And second, what is that doing to us in the grand scheme of things? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, and this is The Big Story. John Semley is a freelance writer who looked into Anne with an E and its fans in The Walrus. Hey, John. Hi, thanks for having me. No problem. Why don't you just start, because it's going to kind of guide this whole uh, chat we're going to have. Explain exactly what cultural politics is. Right. So cultural politics is kind of a heady, woolly concept. But at its core, it's the idea that cultural objects or texts, as they're sometimes called, uh, have a sort of latent political meaning. And I mean, you can see this in journalism or film reviews and stuff like this. You know, you read about uh, The Sopranos and how Tony Soprano is the embodiment of frail masculinity post 9-11. It's it's the idea that there's, if not a deliberate political agenda, then something political about culture and our engagement with it. And that the types of culture that we choose to engage with can itself become almost a form of political identification. We'll probably also get into this in a bit more detail too, but is this... um... Is this a theory that's been around for a long time? Is it on the rise uh, recently in modern pop culture? Yeah, I think so. In its most common form, I think you can trace it back to uh, British academics in the 70s, you know, who were writing about stuff like the emerging punk scene or how, uh, you know, skinheads were adopting the codes and fashions of British working class culture. Uh, You can go back further to sort of pre-World War II Germany, where you have a lot of philosophers who are writing about how certain cultural objects sort of anticipate or serve as premonitions to uh, a looming fascism. Of course, this all snapped into focus uh, after that sort of fascism broke out. Uh, 
Uh, and it goes back to basically a very kind of like vulgar notion of Marxist thought, which states that there's this relationship between the base, which is the people, and the superstructure, which in Marxism is the economy, uh, that always kind of takes the same form. And one of those forms it can take is culture. So if you live in a capitalist culture, the theory goes that the culture produced in that system will always, in one way or another, tend to reinforce the capitalist system. Now, that can be in a literal sense because you're paying for a ticket or for an album and that money goes into the pockets of a corporate overlord or Disney-style Globex corporation. Uh, or again, in the more sort of subtle and not-so-subtle messaging of a certain film or book or piece of music. Does all culture, in that sense, have to carry um, political overtones, undertones, I guess, one way or the other? Or are we selecting uh, certain pieces? Yeah, I think the idea is that the we tend to select certain pieces, I think. I mean, there's... A distinction, depending who you read, between like, you know, some people, a lot of these German guys writing in the 30s would say, well, we should not be listening to light opera music because it's fascist. We have to be listening to atonal jazz because the music is so <laughs> jarring that it gives us this sort of contemplative space where we can reconsider our assumptions about the world. And there are other people who would say that, well, a simple one chord punk song is an affront to the beauty and simplicity of of pop music as we know it, and that that's important. So we, we tend to sort of, it, it depends who's writing and who's reading and what their sort of uh, bugbears and interests are. But I think that what we're seeing in the modern context is how these ideas are being used almost in the service of culture, not as a way to be like, here are how these things affront these sort of enormous systems that we're trying to think about, but how they actually work in tandem to serve them. It almost reminds me of, I remember reading an article a few years back about how, you know, Russian oligarchs were hiring sort of continental philosophers and people who knew a lot about media theory just to provide a theoretical undergirding to their autocracy. Uh, so this is the sort of perversion that we're in now, where these ideas that were originally created to think through and to criticize these systems of power become sort of servants to those same systems. It all sounds so ominous. I know. And uh, we're going to go from that like ominous, um, highly intellectual discussion of cultural politics to um, the case study we're kind of going to work through today. And to begin that, you have to uh, pretend that I have never seen uh, Anne with an E because I have never seen a second of it. Um, what is it? So Anne with an E is uh, the latest adaptation of uh, Lucy Maud Montgomery's Anne Shirley character, the Anne of Green Gables novels. You know, I'm sure if you're Canadian, you can't really get through life without encountering Anne Shirley in yes. one way or another. Uh, now, it is distinct from previous adaptations in the sense that, well, in a very contemporary way, it's it's grittier, right? I mean, one of the opening sequences involves a very brutal beating of an orphan. Uh, it has this... Really? <laughs> yeah. I, I honestly didn't know that about Anne with an E. Yeah. I mean, look, I'll be perfectly honest. And, uh, you know, I have some friends who work on the show and stuff like that. And I think it's a pretty good show. I mean, the show and it's, it's kind of immaterial to my analysis of it in a way. Um, but yes, it's this sort of grittier adaptation of Anne of Green Gables uh, that also brings in in a kind of a historical way, a lot of contemporary political issues and issues around social justice, whether that be talking about residential schools or whether that be sort of things like, you know, LGBTQ representation. By ahistorical, I just mean that, you know, obviously in PEI in the late 19th century, people weren't necessarily having these discussions, right? Uh, but it speaks to our present moment in that regard. And I think that's why a lot of people respond to it so positively. But it's not on TV right now. 
No, it was canceled. Uh, yeah, it aired on CBC slash Netflix, and it ran three seasons, and it was canceled last fall. And what happened then? Well, this is the thing, right? It's a very boring answer, uh, which is that the CBC sort of realized that they were doing these co-productions with Netflix, which, you know, have been and benefited shows like Anne with an E or Schitt's Creek when it was sort of distributed on Netflix. That's when it really found an audience. But, you know, Catherine Tate of the CBC she kind of said that the priority should be given to funding the domestic film and television industry instead of, you know, funding these co-productions where the money ultimately goes in Netflix's pocket. Hmm. Net- Netflix and U.S. streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime, they don't collect sales tax. They don't do their sort of tithes to the Canadian media fund that broadcasters like the CBC or CTV have to. Uh, so I think there was a sense that it was an unbalanced relationship and they kind of wanted to get out of this business. So that's the answer. Like I say, it's a it's a boring business efficiency answer. <laughs> Which relates to the capitalism of, of modern cultural politics, I guess. Certainly, yeah. I mean, this is just kind of business as usual. This is what happens. People, uh, these decisions happen. But, you know, what happens in the case of Anne specifically is it's taken as a personal affront. You know, the, the fans of this show... Uh, whether or not they are, are pretending to ignore this explanation, they just don't find it satisfactory. So what did they do? Tell, tell me about the reaction to the cancellation. So there was a lot of kind of online lobbying on, on websites like Twitter in the comment section of CBC articles where fans would kind of uh, gather, use hashtags like renew in with an E, uh, try to just sort of put pressure on the CBC and Netflix in the form of kind of flooding them with comments to bring the show back. They also did things like uh, distribute online petitions, one of which I think has a million signatures when the article was kind of in its last stages of editing, probably more than a million now, uh, and buy billboards at Young and Dundas Square and at Times Square. And it's like, I can't, I guess I could have looked it up, but I can't imagine how pricey a billboard in Times Square would be. Uh, so yeah, there's this, there's this real effort to bring the show back. And as I write about my article, this effort adopts a sort of political language and a political energy towards the end of reviving a TV show, which I found very curious when I saw it happening. Yeah, well, that's why we wanted to talk to you, because uh, it seems like... Uh, something like the renewal of, of Anne with an E, which again, is, regardless of the devotion of the fans, and I'm not speaking to the quality of the show because now I'm worried um, that they'll come for me. Uh, and Watch I haven't your mentions, seen it. Jordan. Yes. They will, they will come for you with their. Uh, and I'm not, out. I'm not commenting on the quality of the show at all, but, but it seems like a relatively innocuous Canadian television production to attract uh, this level of campaigning and ire and passion uh, amongst a fan base. Yeah, I agree with that. And that is partly why I found it interesting. I mean, I went into this and found out about the legions of Anne fans throughout the years. Like, did you know in Japan, it's now abandoned, but there was an, a recreation Avonlea theme park in Japan? I obviously did not know that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's now abandoned, which is kind of creepier. It almost makes it more interesting to visit if we can ever go anywhere ever again. Um but yeah, I, th- I think that the innocuousness of it is what makes it so interesting. I sort of just touch on this in the article, but you know, we're used to sports fandom or more sort of muscular jockey hobbies inspiring this sort of fervent mania. But for people to rally in this way around something like Anne with an E, it just seems 
it's like the subject matter is seems disproportionate to the energy put around it, if that makes sense. I, I felt the same way when Taylor Swift had a new album come out and anyone who gave it a bad review, her fans were kind of sending veiled or not so veiled death threats or hexes and stuff like that. And it's like, how can someone as seemingly innocuous and plain and kind of run of the mill as Taylor Swift or Anne Shirley, you know, juice this kind of enthusiasm? That's what I found kind of interesting. Well, and this is where I want to uh, get you to tie it all back into cultural politics, because this is um, it's a form of activism. It's a campaign. Yes, it is a campaign. Uh, it is a form of activism. Um, but what I think is happening and what the, the larger problem, if we want to call it a problem that my article is diagnosing, is that there is a manner in which these campaigns take the form of politics but in a way that is almost not just sort of an adjunct or a form of politics, but almost replacing it. Uh, and I think that that was especially noticeable with Anne when, again, there's a lot of, for lack of a better word, political issues in the show uh, that awaken people to it. You know, I had fans sharing t with me campaigns to like pass around more information about residential schools. And it's like, yes, totally. I agree. We should learn more about residential schools. But I think the issue is that this this form of politics it almost comes to replace kind of politics as usual, right? In the same way that culture and cultural power has come to replace political power, you know, in North America and other parts of the world, sort of in the last 50 or 75 years. And, you know, what I mean by that is we have so much fretting about culture, right? People say, oh, well, Hollywood liberals, Hollywood's so liberal. Oh, they're trying to push this agenda down our throats. It's like, uh, yeah, okay, but like that cultural power often comes at the expense of real political power. Now, that's one thing to say that like, well, we can determine what messaging we're getting across on TV or in films because we're not, don't have people in, you know, the House of Commons or in the Senate or something like that. But it's another thing when that messaging and that conception of politics comes to substitute for the latter definition of politics, where this sort of political energy is awakened and then subsequently satisfied through taking part in, you know, fan campaigns. and As opposed to pushing for actual truth and reconciliation. Exactly. Or, you know, going door to door and handing out pamphlets for politicians right. you might like to get, all that boring stuff, you know. So how did, uh, how did we get here and, and what does it say about, you know, the rest of our politics? Did, did we end up here because we're lacking uh, so much inspiration in the political world that, that people turn to this? Um, or is this just kind of a, a natural evolution of our culture and, and it's more fun for us to do it this way? I think it has to do with, you know, a general lack of belief in politics itself, by which I mean yeah. a, a lack of belief in the idea that I can change anything, that my ballot makes a lick of difference, that I can, you know, essentially impose my will onto the world. That sounds very like fascist and Nietzschean, but the idea that you can take part in the world in a meaningful way, which is what the promise of liberal democracy is, right? Mm -hmm. You're just Joe or Jane Schmo. But you can affect real change in the world at the ballot box. I think people are starting to get a sense, and I don't think it's a paranoia. I think it's a real thing because of how politics have kind of developed, that we don't matter. And there's not candidates that really speak to us. And there's not things that can really energize us. And if they do energize us, it's not going to energize enough people to actually affect that meaningful change, right? Uh, there's a sort of basic cynicism about the political process and with good reason in a lot of cases that we're always voting for the least worst option or that our votes mm -hmm. don't matter and stuff like that. So I think that that 
promise of liberal democracy, against that that sense that you can take part in something that you can change, uh, you see it in a mutated form in these fan campaigns because frankly, a lot of these fan campaigns are more effective than ballot box voting for political change. It's easier to revive Family Guy than it is to get Bernie Sanders elected. I was just going to say, I can't ever uh, I can't ever do enough to bring in a universal basic income, but if I yell loud enough, they might bring back the Fresh Prince as a drama. <laughs> oh my God, what a disaster that would be. As a sidebar, I mean, the Fresh Prince was dr- dramatic enough. Does anyone watch that episode where Will's dad comes back and say, wow, this isn't serious or dramatic enough, you know? Uh, anyways, another problem with our culture. Yes. But I mean, the point of affecting uh, change being possible uh, in culture, but but almost impossible from uh, at least the average person's point of view in politics is, uh, is kind of a stunning thing to consider when you think about what that means for uh, the next five or 10 years of political engagement. Well, definitely. I, I think that culture has become this space of engagement in a way that is very confused. I mean, one of the things I talk about in my article is how when fans act like this, when they organize these campaigns, there's kind of a mistaken belief that they are shareholders in this cultural product, which maybe in some kind of metaphorical way is true. I watched Star Wars as a kid, and so Star Wars is a part of my memory. So if they change what happens in a Star Wars movie, it's an affront to my memories. I don't personally believe that, but that's the kind of line of thinking that you see. But you're not literally a stakeholder. If Anne with an E was renewed, you don't get a dime of any of the money that is produced by it, you know? So we still are beholden to this system that we're excluded from, but we're sort of being made to believe that we can take part in it and shape it. The analogy that I use with this, and I feel like I use have used this in my writing a few times because it's a favorite, but the Simpsons episode where Marge makes a fake birthday cake for Homer to ruin so he doesn't ruin Maggie's real birthday cake. (laughs) This is what kind of culture and fandom has become is this sort of fake cake where it's like, yeah, go nuts. Well, all the elites and the people who have actual proximity to the levers of power are enjoying the real cake on the other side of the room. And how nasty um, can this get when it's pushed to the wrong direction? Because on one side of this, um, there is campaigning for Things that fans love and want brought back, like Anne with an E or The Fresh Prince or Full House uh, a little while ago. Um, And on the other side is uh, the online stands. And I think you just touched on it a little bit uh, when you mentioned Taylor Swift. But there are are whole armies out there for many different uh, celebrities and uh, intellectual properties. Yeah, I mean, the nastiness you saw it again with Taylor Swift. Look, the Anne with an E people are among the ranks of types of fans. Fairly innocent. And the thing that they care about is a show that, yes, probably has a positive impact on the world if you want to conceive it in that way. Um, You know, when people were talking about a new edit of the film Justice League, you heard about death threats uh, sent to Warner Brothers and stuff like this, you know, like it is an actual mania and not in the sense in a sort of casual way. But I feel like it actually kind of grips people in this way. that, yeah, I find a little bit ugly and a little bit disturbing. And the other thing is how the celebrities and the franchises, they 
I believe, actively court and encourage this level of engagement, right? Well, you the, want a passionate fan base. Of course. Like I meant, I think I say in the article, like the, the Stan, named after the obsessive stalker from the Eminem song of the same name, has kind of become the de facto unit of appreciation. And whenever I write about this stuff, people come at me and they say, oh, you don't like anything. You don't care about anything. Granted, I wrote a book called Hater that's all about being disagreeable. But it doesn't mean I literally don't like anything. But if I disagree with like a plot twist in a James Bond movie to cite a franchise that I am fond of, I would never think of writing a letter <laughs> to the studio or something like that. You know, it just doesn't really ruin my life in this way. And I, and I think that like, this is the thing that I find curious about it, right? You see in these campaigns, how passionate, how organized, how high energy people can be about something. And it's frustrating because you say, well, move that energy in this direction, you know, away from culture and into politics. Uh, so it becomes kind of inspiring because you see the collective effort, but then despairing because you see what the collective effort is being marshaled towards. Uh, I hesitate to ask this because I don't know if you have an Actually, I do know that you probably don't have an answer, but um, what's the solution? How, how do we channel that energy back into politics? Uh, the first thing that came to my mind reading your piece was the very few politicians out there who can actually uh, channel that kind of energy. And the first one that came to mind was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and that kind of um, hyper-engaged fan base. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it is possible. And I think that shows like this, I mean, part of the thing about cultural politics, right, is that when you start thinking about culture in this way, you start reconceiving of how you view the world, how who controls the world, what your place is in it. And then ideally, you can sort of bring that into the larger sphere, right? The worry is that when you're just on the online chat rooms, when you're just in front of your TV watching shows. So when Anne with an E fans start talking about LGBTQ rights or how people need to learn more about residential schools, I think that is a good first step. You mm -hmm. know, the, th the other thing I see, like you mentioned people like Cortez or, you know, pick a politician. I mean, even some of the Bernie Sanders fans obviously got a lot of uh, flack for their online activity right it, it, it the the sort of stand culture migrates into politics proper as well in a way that is kind of creepy like remember when trudeau got elected we had all those like justin trudeau is my canadian boyfriend calendars yes, and all that I, stuff i do remember that it, and it was a little embarrassing i mean i i see that as being a part of this same flattening you know the the one i always think of people use sort of cultural references as shorthand right like hillary clinton is daenerys targaryen or donald right. trump is voldemort from harry mm -hmm. potter i mean the wires just feel so crossed in this respect uh and i think we have to understand that well, culture is a place where you can conceive about politics and learn about politics and even conceive of yourself as being a politicized person in a political system. And it's rich for me to be saying this, but it's like you can't just sit around writing like salon articles all day. <laughs> <laughs> it is rich for you to be saying, yes. <laughs> oh, but I mean, this is the other thing. Like when I write this stuff, I'm totally aware that I'm a part of this in a certain respect. And it's something that I'm trying to get out of professionally because it gets a little embarrassing when you're in your 30s and like writing about this stuff. Um but you got to keep the lights on at the same time, too. You know what I mean? I do. In fact, um, I'm turning 40 <laughs> in two weeks and I'm talking to you about it. So here we are. Um, <laughs> well, this is different. This is a meta analysis. Like, again, like my my beef is not with Anne with an E. Again, I find the show pretty charming and uh, its messages and messaging pretty positive. Uh, but I think that it was a good case for sort of examining this this style of fandom that's emerged. Is somebody going to cave and renew it? Is that on the table? I mean, if the stands had their way, right, all these people would be like 
at at gunpoint having to do like a fourth season of this show. Um, but I don't know. Like I believe the showrunner uh, mentioned that she'd be into doing it. But by the time this happens, you know, the people will have aged and presumably moved on to other projects. I know that the Friends of Canadian Broadcasting uh, were trying, who were kind of a lobbyist group, were trying to get some steam under this to try to get a new season going. Um, but the other problem with this, and, you know, we'll talk to Dave Barry about this. He just wrote a book about nostalgia, but it's so locked in the past, right? We don't want new things. We want new seasons of the things that we like. Uh, so, yeah. If yes, me came, and uh, Norm Wilner have had several conversations about this, usually when the latest Disney live-action remake shows up. Oh, my gosh. And they're not live-action either, if I may say. No, they're just yeah, animated in a different way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that there's – there's if someone caves – and again, this is my vulgar Marxist answer uh, – they'll cave because it's profitable to do so and because – it's, you know, good business for them to do so. You've seen this with other fan campaigns, going back to the original Star Trek campaign, going back to a Canadian show like Winona Earp, which was renewed because fans sort of said, hey, we're here and we want this. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, again, at the risk of being vulgar, simple-minded, it's a decision that's made in ledgers and not because Catherine Tate or whomever, whomever is in charge at Netflix thinks that it's the right thing to do. Right. Well, listen, anytime um, you have a million fans clamoring for uh, a piece of Canadian produced television, uh, that's not nothing, knowing the uh, the landscape in this country. And fans from all over the world. I mean, I sort of got the idea to write this article because I saw this happening. This was back in March, right? Early lockdown, bored out of my mind. And I just tweeted as a joke, not really as a joke, uh, I will renew Anne with an E or something like that. <laughs> and then immediately all these people who search the or have a, a pop-up or whatever, an alert for it, all started flooding me. People from Brazil, from Mexico, from Asia, from all over the world uh, saying, looks like we got another one and all this. And I was like, wow, this thing is really global and weird, you know? And it was in that moment where it's like, I felt like I'd been kind of glimpsing this stuff through a keyhole and then the door just kind of blew open. Which, you know, kind of made me want to write about it. To avenge all the, uh, myself against all those people who showed up in my mentions back in March. That's why anyone writes anything, right, Jordan? Just resentment for other people. Yeah, pretty much. Or, uh, or for clicks. But I'm glad that you wrote it. I'm glad uh, you talked to us. And I will just say the reason that I wanted to have this conversation about Anne with an E is because um, so much of the conversation we usually have around uh, the toxicity of culture and, and how screwed up it is, is about uh, negative things. And it's it's nice to examine it through the lens of something that by all accounts is, um, you know, wholesome. Yeah. And if I may say one thing, I mean, this is an interesting thing about the way that political language is deployed in this fandom is when this article is published, a lot of the fans are coming at me saying, oh, you're just uh, a misogynist white guy who doesn't like this because teenage girls are passionate about it. Which is not tr true. I don't spend my days getting angry about stuff that is energizing teenage girls. But I find it very interesting that even that language, like you're a misogynist, you're uh, straight mm. white male, cis male and all this stuff. They were using that political language again to discredit me and the article. I mean, I, at the risk of patting myself on the back, it plays precisely into the behavioral patterns that I was diagnosing. But, you know, to clarify, like I say, I don't hate teenage girls and I don't hate this show. But I think... It, you know, partly because of that innocuousness that you mentioned, it makes it a rich and interesting case study for how these communities operate. 
Well, thank you for talking to us about it today. And I promise if uh, fans are listening and they made it to the end, I'm going to watch an episode, at least one. <laughs> You're a good man. With eyes open, open mind, uh, open heart, etc. And we'll see if it hooks me. Well, I hope you like it. And maybe I'll see your name on the next petition. Amazing. All right. Thanks, John. Yeah, no problem, Jordan. That was John Semley. From the walrus, at least this time. That was The Big Story. If you want more, thebigstorypodcast.ca is your destination. You can also, of course, find us and all the other podcasts on Frequency by going to FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com. You can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN and in your podcast player, where right there you can rate us, you can give us a review, you can tell your friends, you can subscribe, and of course, you can always listen. Claire Broussard is the lead producer of The Big Story, Ryan Clark. Stephanie Phillips are our associate producers. And Elisa Nielsen is our digital editor. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk on Monday. <laughs>